Welcome back to another Human Exception. This week, we'll be talking about missing persons cases, and I'll be starting us off with the mysterious case of the Yuba County Five. How do five men end up abandoning their car on a snowy mountain in a national park when their plan was to head to the next town over for a basketball game and return that same night? We'll get into that and discuss all the mysteries and questions that surround this case. Please be advised that the story does mention suicide and discusses mental illness, and as always, foul language will be abound. Time to get ready for another human exception. Welcome back to another human exception. Sorry, uh, we missed y'all last week. Yeah, that. I was gonna say you can blame me because. <laughs> yeah, in in honor of this episode, Hallie was missing. <laughs> I was missing a combination of a cat who uh, sporadically went blind, health problems, and bullshit life stuff. How's that? No dog. Yeah, so this week we're talking about missing persons. So we've got a couple of things to share here. But before we get into that, um, you guys remember way back when when I did the Tanguska event? Oh and yeah. I was telling you guys about, about that TV show. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um I finally watched it. And um, so in case you don't remember, it was like a survivor slash like lost <laughs> TV show. Like it's 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 filmed like a reality TV show, but it isn't. It's completely scripted and it's just weird and great and wonderful. And it was actually like I really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, and it, it never went more than one season. Oh, I'm sad. And so now everyone needs to go and watch the show. <laughs> and I was so impressed because there was so much stuff about the Tungavska event just like casually put in there that was all legitimate. <laughs> Um, like they find this journal at some point. It's like, oh yeah, you know this. Oh, this journal's from 1928, and it's written by this guy. Like, yes, it was written by that guy. I knew that journal. I've read parts of that journal. <laughs> it was uh, great. Um, so yeah, the Tunguska event, like where the the survivors get dropped off, is pretty much in the same area as the Tunguska event happened, and a bunch of weird stuff starts to happen. They don't know about it because you know, unless you were nerds like us, you usually don't know about that kind of stuff. And also, they weren't told where they're being dropped off. They just told they got dropped off in Siberia, which is massive. So fair. But yeah, weird shit starts to happen. Um talks a lot about kind of the indigenous folklore is kind of referenced in there, obviously in a hokey like way, but still like it was actually referenced. And yeah, some stuff about the Tangas event does come up. That is so cool. Wow. That's very sweet. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it was I really enjoyed it. It's um all done like almost in a found footage style, like obviously because it's the cameramen that are there with them. So like it is filmed just like Survivor. If you've ever seen Survivor, it's just like that. And like um you sometimes you can you like will forget for a moment that it's a scripted show because it's just like oh it's usual kind of drama and stuff, and then and then like something weird happens, you're like, all oh, right, no, this is a scripted show. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. Uh, nice. Yeah. It's not easy to find. Um, Tyler had to dig around in some legal sources to find. (laughs) 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 But really, like, it came out in 2013, and, like, the show came out and was on the same time slot as the um, the Under the Dome or something like that. Oh. Yeah. Stephen King? Yeah, so get completely yeah. screwed for ratings because of that, because right. it's competing. <laughs> and that's probably the biggest reason that it didn't do as well as it could have. Okay, that makes sense. Anyway, enough about Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, do you guys want to guess how many downloads we have now? <laughs> uh, mm, I'm really bad at this. Like, 1150. Close, 1107. So we had broken a thousand. What up? Nice. Thanks, y'all. Yeah. People out there listening to our bullshit, I love it. See, I am constantly amazed by that. 
<laughs> who are you all? Why? Why? What's going on? What's happening? I know it's not like the two people whom I know. <laughs> yeah, we know how many friends yeah, we have no. that are listening. There are other people out there now. So. <laughs> Come talk to us on the Discord server. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we do have a Discord server. If you want to check it out, go to thehumanexception.com and go to our contact section and you can find the link to our Discord server and you can come chat about Final Fantasy fourteen or share recipes or <laughs> talk about true crime. <laughs> this is the things that we do. Mm-hmm. It is. To be fair, it could be it could be much weirder. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It could be a lot weirder. <laughs> I'm sure it will get there eventually. All right, so missing person stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's going first? Uh, I think it's me this time because I went first. I went last last time. You. All right. All right. Give it to us. Yeah. So we're gonna be talking about the Yuba County Five. On February 24th, 1978, five young men from Yuba City, California, attended a basketball game in California State University. These five men were Bill Sterling, 29, Jack Hewitt, 24, Ted Wire, 32, Jack Madruga, 30, and Gary Mathias, who was 25. They were there to cheer on the UC Davis basketball team in an away game against Chico State. Their plan, to see the match and then return home that night to prepare for their own game the following day. But they never made it home. Several days later, the group's Mercury Montego was found, abandoned in a remote area of the Plumas National Forest on a high mountain dirt road that was far out of their way to get back to Yuba. So why had the car been abandoned? It was in good working order and could easily have been pushed out of the snow that it was in especially with the help of five young men. And where did they go? This is the story of the Yuba County Five. So Gary Mathias had grown up in in Yuba City, and he had joined the military in the early 1970s. He had been stationed in West Germany, but it wouldn't be long before he developed a drug habit, which eventually led him to being diagnosed with schizophrenia and leading to a psychiatric discharge. Matthias returned home and moved back in with his parents, where he began treatment at a local mental hospital. It was a rocky start with encounters with the law and a couple psychotic episodes, but by 1978, Matthias was on the right path and considered by his physicians to be one of our sterling success cases. Matthias received army disability pay for his time in the military, but to help supplement this income, he also worked at his stepfather's gardening business. Matthias' future was looking bright. But that wasn't all. Matthews had managed to make fr- make friends with four other men with, well, semi-similar disabilities. Sterling and Hewitt had a slight intellectual challenges, while Weir and Madruga were considered slow learners and were also army vets. So basketball was their favorite pr- pastime, and all five men were part of the Gateway Gators, a basketball team sponsored by a local program for the mentally handicapped. If they weren't playing, they were watching, and if they weren't doing that, the men hung out together frequently. Due to their special needs, all the men lived at home with their parents, either in Yuba or nearby Marysville. Their families affectionately called the group The Boys. On February 25th, the the boys were due to play their first game in a week-long tournament sponsored by the Special Olympics. The winning team would get to go to L.A. for a free trip for a week, and they were all beyond excited. So the night before, they had laid out their uniforms. Others had asked their parents to make sure that they woke up on time, reminding them frequently that they must wake up on time for the game the next day. And with everything ready, the group departed for the UC Davis game in Chico, the trip that would end in tragedy. So the boys made the 50-mile, or about 80-kilometer, drive north from Yuba County to Chico in Madruga's Pride and Joy, a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego. And I'm going to show you this car because it's amazing. I was going to say, I need to see this. Oh, my God. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Isn't that a gorgeous car? Mm-hmm. That is. That that actually looks like something. It's not the same type of car, but it reminds me of something that my dad had restored one time. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. And here, and here are the uh, five dudes. Gotcha. Yeah, so they were driving the car. Um, they were only light coats against the cool temperatures. They weren't planning on spending any length of time o- outside. Like, this is California in the lower areas. It is pretty, like, 
moderate temperature during the winter in February, but in, you know, Northern California and stuff up in the mountains, it will get snowy, but they weren't planning to go up in the mountains. They were going to stay down in the low areas where they wouldn't really need much gear against the winter. So the last game of the night ended at 10 p.m. and the boys began the journey home, but not before stopping a couple blocks away at Bear's Market to get some road snacks, much to the annoyed shopkeep who was trying to close for the night. Stocked with pies, chocolate bars, soda, and milk, the troop hit the road. Their families all expected the men to be back that night. Some of their parents even waited up for the return of their sons. But when morning broke, they had not appeared, the police were notified. Police from, from both Butte and Yuba counties searched the route the men had taken, but found absolutely no sign of them. And on February 28th, the Plumas National Forest Ranger, had seen the, who had seen the Montego parked up the forest road on February 25th, had called into the police. He had just seen the flyers reporting the boys missing in the car, and previously he just assumed the car would belong to some cross-country skiers, which was really common, but after, you know, recognizing the vehicle, he knew that this was something else. So the police went up to the car, and the deputies found it unlocked with, with a window rolled down. Inside, food wrappers, empty cartons and cans, along with programs from the basketball game and a neatly folded roadmap from California. The goodies that they had bought at Bear's Market were all consumed except for half of a marathon bar. The car was stuck in some snowdrifts with signs of spinning under the tires, but the police noted that the snow was not, wasn't, that very, wasn't very deep and the five men should have been easily able to push it out. The keys were missing, which is just suggested that maybe they ran into car trouble and went for help. But when the police hotwired the car, it started immediately and the gas tank was a quarter, qu quarter full, so they weren't out of gas. The car led to more questions than answers. The first was, why here? At the top of a long, winding dirt road leading up into the remote forest at an elevation of 4,400 feet at the snow line just short of where the road was closed for the winter. The men weren't prepared for such an adventure. And the location was not on their way home, far off any direct route that would have taken them to Yuba City or Marysville. It was 70 miles or 110 kilometers from Chico, so they'd gone far out of their way. Why would the boys take an off-road joyride on the night before a game that they'd been excitedly chatting about for weeks, and especially with no extra clothing? Madruga hated the cold, and he'd never been up in the mountains before, and while Sterling had gone up on a fishing trip with his father near here, he hated it and opted out of all future trips. So this wasn't something that they would have ever just gone and done on their own. And I'm going to show you a map. This is the thing. I feel like there is this refrain, right? Through so many of these cases where you're like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> what? It, there's a weird thing and here's another weird thing. And then sometimes the pieces just never get put together. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so yeah, as you see there, we got Chico right up there and the top left there and Yuba straight down. So you can see it is a straight shot yeah. pretty much via the highway between those two towns. But instead, as you can see where the, the number three blocks is, they're up on top of a fucking mountain. Okay. They're on top. Okay. They're on weird. top of a mountain. And then Paradise is right in the middle. And Paradise is where the um, wildfires were a couple of years ago. So, okay. Ooh. So now I know roughly where this is. Gotcha. Yeah. I so, know, right? <laughs> so yeah, the car was towed to the police station where they found no dense gouges or even scrapes on the undercarriage or the low-hanging muffler, despite the distance up the rocky road. Either the driver had been very careful or it was someone familiar with the road, a familiarity that neither Madruga or Matthias had as they were the only men in the group that were capable of driving. And Madruga was also incredibly protective of his car. He wouldn't just let anyone drive it, nor would he have left the car unlocked like it had been found. While the car was being inspected, any efforts to explore the area were hampered by further snowstorms. Two days, two days later, after searchers and snowcats nearly got lost themselves, further efforts were called off due to the weather. No trace of the men was found. The families put up a reward for about $1,200, which would be about $4,800 today, for any information that would lead to the missing men. The story had been widely broadcasted in the area, and police received dozens of tips. Leads were drifting in from all over the country. The boys had been seen in Ontario. The boys had been seen in Tampa. The boys had been seen entering a movie theater in Sacramento, accompanied by an older man. 
Ayers could punch holes. Ayers, the deputy, could punch holes in all of them. But he was skeptical and desperate. They even consulted psychics. One told them the boys had been kidnapped to Arizona and and Nevada. And another said that the boys had been murdered in Oroville in a two-story red house, brick or stained wood, with a gravel driveway, with the numbers either 4723 or 4753. For two solid days, Ayers drove up and down the streets in Oroville, but looking for this house, but it just did not exist. But there were two tips that came in that really stood out. There was a store in a small hamlet of Brownsville, about 30 miles or about 48 kilometers from where the car had been found. The men could have easily made it there if they had just followed the road down where they left the, from where they left the car. On March 3rd, one of the store's employees called the police and told them that she had seen the four, seen four of the men stop at, at the store in a red pickup two days after they had disappeared. She said that she identified the men immediately as out-of-towners due to their big eyes and facial expressions. Two of the men that she identified as Hewitt and Sterling had went to a phone booth outside, while the other two had gone inside. The store owner corroborated the account, saying that the two men who came in the store were Warrior and Hewitt, and they brought a cup. They bought a couple burritos, chocolate milk, and soft drinks. Both witnesses were deemed credible, but this left many more questions. Who was the driver of the red truck? If they had been there two days after they disappeared, why hadn't they contacted their families? And where were they now? The other tip the police had received was a bizarre one. Joseph Jones of Sacramento had inadvertently ended up spending the night of February 24th in his car up near where the Montego was found. He had driven up the mountain where he had a cabin to check the state of the snow in advance of a family skate trip he had planned for that weekend. At about 5.30 p.m., about 150 feet up the road from where the Montego would be found, he'd gotten stuck in, stuck in the snow. In the process of trying to get free, he realized that he was beginning to experience the early symptoms of a heart attack and had retreated to his car, leaving the engine running for heat. Six hours later, lying in the car in severe pain, he heard what he described as whistling noises a little way down the road. He got out of his car, and what he saw was looked like a group of men and a woman with a baby walking in the glare of the vehicle's headlights. He thought he heard them talking. Shones yelled at them for help, but the headlights went out and the talking stopped. Shones got back into his car and lay down again. What the what? Shones said he... I already have right? goosebumps. <laughs> like, this is setting off my spidey sense real bad. Shones said he lay in his car until it ran out of gas. And then while it was still dark, he walked back eight miles to a lodge called Mountain House, where he had stopped for a drink before heading up the road. Just below his Volkswagen, in the place where the, he'd heard the voices, he passed the Mercury Montego, sitting empty in the middle of the road. Doctors yeah. later confirmed that Jones had indeed suffered a mild heart attack. Uh. Hmm. Who was the woman with the baby? <laughs> I am so creeped out right now. Okay. <laughs> Why would they have not gone and helped this guy? That is weird. That is weird. Okay. And, like, how would they have wound up on a red truck two days later? Oh, I hate this. I hate this so much already. Okay. <laughs> there simply was not enough evidence for any clear conclusions about what had happened that night or where the men had gone, but they were still considering foul play. June 4th, most of the higher elevation snow had melted, and a group of motorists had went to a trailer in the mountains that was maintained by the Forest Service. The trailer was at a campsite, a popular pit stop and resting place for hikers in the park. The motorists had noticed that the front window of the 60-foot trailer had been broken, and when they opened the door, they were overcome by the intense odor of decay. Upon this discovery, the motorists contacted the police. This little camp was off the road, about 19 miles or 31 kilometers from where the car had been found. Recovery teams spent half a day clearing five huge trees from the roadway before they could finally reach the trailer. So the area was searched following the road between the trailers and the side of the Montego. And the next day they found the remains of Madruga and Sterling on the opposite sides of the road, about 11 miles from where the car had been left. The bones, the bodies had been scavenged by animals, but what remained was autopsy and showed that they'd both died from hypothermia. Two days later, as part of a search party, Hewitt's father would find his son's backbone under a manzanita bush, two miles east of the trailer his shoes and jeans nearby helped identify the body. And the next day, the deputy sheriff would then find the skull downhill from a bush about 300 feet away. 
roughly a quarter mile northwest of the trailer, searchers found three wool for we three wool forest service blankets and a two cell flashlight lying by the side of the road. The flashlight was slightly rusted and had been turned off. It was impossible to tell just how long it had been there. Now, back of the trailer, Weir's body was found on a bed entirely wrapped in eight sheets, including his head. An autopsy showed that he had died of a combination of starvation and hypothermia. Weir had lost nearly half of his 200 pounds, and the growth of his beard suggested that he'd lived as long as 13 weeks after he last shaved. Oh my god. What the fuck? His feet were badly frostbitten and almost gangrenous. And on the table next to the bed were some of Weir's personal effects, including his wallet with cash, a nickel ring with the name Ted engraved in it, and a gold necklace that he frequently wore. There was also a partially melted candle, as well as a gold watch without its crystal, which the Weir family said did not belong to him. He was wearing a velour velour shirt and lightweight pants, but his shoes could not be found. How had Weir come to this fate? No fire had been set in the trailer's fireplace, despite an ample supply of matches and paperback novels that it could have been used for kindling. Heavy forestry clothing, which the men could have worn to keep warm, were untouched. And they were just in closets there in the trailer. They found dozens of sea ration cans from a storage shed outside that had been opened and their contents had been consumed. But there was also a locker in the same shed that held a greater assortment of dehydrated foods that would have been enough to keep all men, all five men fed for a year if it had been necessary. But it was completely untouched. Another shed nearby held a butane tank with a valve on it. Had it been open, they could have fed the trailer's heating system. All they had to do was turn that gas on, says Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers, and they'd have gas for the trailer and they would have had heat. So it also seemed that Weir had not been alone in the trailer, and that Matthias and possibly Hewitt had been there with him. Matthias' sneakers were there in the trailer, and the sea rations had been opened by a P-38 can opener, which only Matthias or Madruga would have been familiar with due to their military experience. Do you guys know what a P-38 can opener is? No. That's not it. That's a map. Um... (laughs) So it's like this little piece of metal oh. with a collapsible blade on it that um, yeah. they use in the military. And it's not an easy thing to use <laughs> if you don't know what no. you're doing. So, and especially with um, the men of not being, being of that like mentally handicapped sort, they in general would not have known how to use it or figure it out. But they had two, they had three men in the group that did know how to, that were from the military, had been in the military. So they would have known how to use right. it. And the sheets of a weird's body also suggested that one of the others had been there with him, as his gangrenous feet would have been too much pain for him to pull the sheets over himself. Despite knowing that four of the men had died, investigators still couldn't completely explain what had occurred and how it had led to their deaths. All that was left to do was find Matthew's body, but after two weeks with little progress made, investigators called off the search on June 19, 1978, leaving his emotionally battered family without the closure that they craved. Other than Matthias's shoes in the trailer, there was no trace of the man in the area. It was presumed that he could have not taken his medication with them, so pictures of him were distributed to mental institutions across California. However, nothing was ever found. They took on they took a water witcher from up, a town up north called Paradise, who said that he'd fixed it so his divining rods could pick up traces of human minerals, and then led the searchers to a deserted cabin near the abandoned car. They found a gray cigarette lighter, the disposable plastic kind, about three quarters of a mile northwest of the trailer, but the, tra- but the, house- but the cabin was empty. The family said none of the boys carried a lighter. But despite all their efforts, nothing helped. The cigarette lighter might have been dropped by a hiker and with the cabin empty, there's they had nothing to go on. And the watch might have belonged to a forest ranger that had been at the trailer months earlier. So why abandon a perfectly operable car to strike out into the forest at midnight? Why press through 20 miles of snowdrifts and darkness to break into a locked, unheated trailer and die? Why drive all the way up there in the first place and how? If someone chased them, why was the car undamaged? And what happened to the car keys? 
Jack Madruga's mother, Mabel, says there was some force that made them go up there. They wouldn't have fled off in the woods like a bunch of quail. We knew good and well that somebody made them do it. We can't visualize someone getting the upper hand in those five men, but we know it must have been. Ted Weir's sister-in-law says, they seen something at that game at the parking lot. They might have seen it and didn't even realize that they had seen it. Another family member says that I can't understand. I can't understand why Gary would have been so scared. All those paperbacks and they didn't even build a lousy fire. I can understand why they didn't do the I can't I can understand why they didn't do that unless they were afraid. Oh, I hate this. Hmm. Oh my god. Alright, so another map here. So this shows location of the body, where the car is. And at the end of the um Around the yellow, yellow road, there's where, where the um, trailer was, where they went. What the shit? And it gives you an idea of, like, the, you know, topology of the land. Because that's a mountain. That's a clear land mountain. Yeah. Jesus. So how did the car get there? Matthews had friends in a small town called Forbestown. It's possible that in an attempt to stop in on the way home, the men had made a wrong turn near Oroville that had put them up in the mountain road and they'd gotten stuck. But... Reddit user CJ refutes this. And he says, if you look at a map, you'll see that Chico to Yuba City is a straight shot down Highway 70 through the Central Valley. The area rarely freezes and never snows, ever. It's low-lying valley land. There's no big turns in the highway. Anybody that lives in that area knows how to navigate it easily. But where they ended up is way out of the way, past Oroville Lake, way up the mountains into the Plumas Natural Forest. This was not a simple wrong turn away from where they were heading. You can't possibly just accidentally end up there along with the, while trying to go along your intended path. You have to go out of your way to get there. We're talking thousands of feet in elevation change when their intended path was all along the valley floor. They had to have had a reason to be where they had ended up. So the question that should be asked here is not why they got out of the car or whether they experienced hypothermia or not when the car stopped. The question is, what the fuck were they doing up there in the middle of nowhere of the mountains in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, with no supplies, no... Oh my gosh. And none of them like camping or snow or anything. <laughs> right. It, 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 yeah, it, it makes zero sense. And then what about the side trip to Brownsville where they were supposedly spotted two days later? It was up as a four-minute visit in a red pickup truck two days after they disappeared. So Weir's brother said that while driving to Brownsville in a different car and apparent ignorance of the basketball games they were supposed to be playing that week seemed completely out of character for them. The owner's description of the two men's behavior seemed consistent with them, as Weir would eat anything he could get his hands on and was often accompanied by Hewitt more than any of the other four. However, Hewitt's brother said that Hewitt hated using telephones to the point that he would handle calls for his brother, even from the other men in the group. Like, Hewitt just did not, could not deal with phones, so why would he have been at the, um, the payphone? And then we think about the heart attack guy. So what about the guy who was having a heart attack up on the road that called for help? Weir's mother had a hard time believing that her son would ignore someone's calls for help if he'd been present. She recalled a time when he and Sterling helped someone that they knew get to the hospital after overdosing on Valium. All of the boys tended to be very compassionate and empathetic in nature. Why would they have just ignored someone's calls? Hmm. And how did they get to the trailer? A day before the men went missing, the Forest Service snowcat had gone along the road in that direction to clear the snow off the trailer roof so that it wouldn't collapse during the winter. It's possible the men saw the tracks cutting through the four to six feet tall snowdrifts and thought that it would lead them to shelter. Madruga and Sterling possibly succumbed to hypothermia on their way to the trailer. Because hmm. that was a 20-mile hike from the car to the trailer. Uh, yeah. In oh snow. Right. And not wearing... Gear, no gear, right? God, yeah. Like one guy was in tennis shoes, and the other guy's wearing velour. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not. So, and then once they got to the trailer, why didn't they use the goods? So, you know, it, when the boys got to the trailer, it would have been locked, so they had to break the window to get inside, which makes sense. 
But with the trailer having been locked, the boys could have been worried that they were in private property and feared being arrested for theft if they used anything else that they found. Weir's family said that this behavior wasn't abnormal of their son. His disability greatly impacted his common sense. He frequently questioned why he had to stop at a stop sign, and one night had to be dragged out of bed while his bedroom ceiling was burning in a house fire since he was worried about missing work the next day if he left his bed and that he, and he could maybe get fired if he, did, if he didn't go to work. Oh, okay. Gosh. Oh. That's rough. So is it possible that they were just like so worried about getting in trouble if they used anything else that they just didn't? They'd rather turn to starvation, but like you'd think human instincts would take over at some point. That's what I was just thinking. Like at some point your your body's going, yeah, no, this isn't <laughs> this isn't worth it. Yeah. And so why was Weir alone in the trailer? It's possible that when Weir died or when he appeared to, the others may have chosen to attempt to return to civilization by different routes, causing them to get lost in the wilderness and succumb to their environments. But, you know, they were found in very different places. Madruga and Sterling were found many, many miles away from where um, Hewitt was found in completely different directions. So did they just did yeah did Madruga and Sterling pass on the way to the trailer or was it after the fact we don't know mm-hmm. and why did Matthew Matthias leave his shoes behind the only trace of Matthias is his shoes that were left in the trailer and you know perhaps his feet had gotten swollen from frostbite and maybe he decided to put on weird shoes instead which would have been bigger and sturdier. So if he was going to go venture outside, that would have made more sense for him. And as Weir couldn't use his shoes anyways, because his his feet were terribly frostbitten, right? So is that what happened? And maybe then just his body just wasn't found? We don't know. And why were three of, the three of the men found outside various distances from the trailer? Deputies speculated that one of them may have succumbed to the desire to sleep that marks the last stages of hypothermia, and that the other refused to leave his side, eventually meeting the same fate. Which, again, could have happened on the way from the car to the trailer or at another time. Now, there is another theory. It's a much darker theory. And this came out from the collaboration of three newspapers in 2019. The Sacramento Bee, the Modesto Bee, and the Fresno Bee, who famously reported on the Fresno Nightcrawlers. <laughs> always comes back. It always it's comes all back. connected. <laughs> so weirdly enough, all these newspapers are called the Bees for some reason. So the Bees were given permission to access the police records from the case as long as they did not photograph or take them out of the Yuba Sher- County Sheriff's Office. They found information in the records that would indicate that it's possible that Gary Mathias was not as harmless as originally believed. Here's the description that they had written for the article. These files, clips, and interviews shape a disturbing image of Mathias. Billed in virtually all media reports at the time as another lost lamb caught out in the cold, Mathias was an aberration within the flock, a young man who did not belong with the others. He was, a, he was violently schizophrenic and had a history of drug use and was like the others. So I want to note here that the way that these newspapers describe this incident, these incidents were, it was completely unknown and like it's very salacious the way they're talking about it. These incidents were known to the police and there were even reports of them in some of the newspapers at the time. So like them being like, oh, we found the secret thing. No, you didn't. You didn't find the secret thing. <laughs> like I read about it before I read your article. So, <laughs> and I have a couple other issues with their whole presentation of the story, but I'm going to try to keep opinions to myself until after we get through it. <laughs> So Matthew's sophomore year in high school would mark his first visit to the psychiatric to a psychiatric facility after a bad hallucination trip. Not long after, he would join the military, but this wouldn't last as his drug habits got him into trouble. At one point, he'd be put into jail at the base. While in jail, he called over a guard and punched him in the face. Oh, I'm be- I've been in the military and I don't like it. I thought if I hit a cop, maybe they'd let me out, he told investigators at the time. He later received a medical discharge after he'd been evaluated and determined that he was schizophrenic. He would return home from Germany, and things would get worse before they got better. Back in Yuba City, Matthias opted to stay with his cousin upon his return instead of his parents. Not a month in, there was an incident. The cousin of Matthias had been watching TV, and the cousin's wife had not been feeling very well, and so she had taken some medication and was asleep in another room. 
At one point, Matthias gets up. Matthias gets up for a bathroom break, but when his break is gone unusually long, the cousin goes to check on him, finding him in the bedroom fondling oh, his come wife. On. After the cousin told him that he was going to call the police, he proceeded to tell his cousin that he wanted to return to jail. And what? he did, though it didn't last long. He was out in eight months. Right. In December of that same year, Matthias would have another run-in with law enforcement. Police would be called to a scene where Matthias was standing outside of a friend's house, banging on the door, demanding to be let in. The couple that lived there explained that Matthias had shown up after shooting meth and dropping bennies and had begun acting erratically, threatening to stab the woman in the jaw. Okay. What the fuck? After he told her their three-year-old daughter, I thought I'd kill you once, I guess I'll have to do it again, the man and the woman reportedly kicked Matthias out of their house where he'd remained until the police had arrived. Jesus. Court records do not indicate that he served any jail time in connection with this incident. Cool. Fine. Matthews also had a history of breaking out of facilities and walking long distances. After being arrested in Stockton at one point, he was sent to a psychiatric f- facility and he spent two days there before breaking out through a drainage pipe, walking slash hitchhiking the 80 miles back home. And later, he would go and live with his grandmother in Northern Oregon. His mother would beg for him to return home. And, you know, one time he just hung up the phone on her and, and then showed up a few weeks later, filthy, and claimed that he'd walk from Portland, stealing milk off porches and eating dog food to stay alive on the 540-mile trip. The final violent incident occurred a few weeks after his trip back home. He broke into the home of a local couple, and the couple woke to find Matthew standing in their bedroom. He told them that he was looking for a ring to return to Satan, and that, he also, that they also owed him rent because the house was his. After that incident, he supposedly straightened out. He started to consistently take his medication and was able to hold down a job with his stepfather's gardening business. He joined the Gateway project, Projects and became friends with the other four men. The four other men had been in the group for four years together, and Matthias then joined them, and by the time that they'd all disappeared, he'd been a part of the group for a year, with no incidents. The bees argue that Matthias didn't belong in the group, as he was considered in- he wasn't actually intellectu- intellectually disabled, though he did have a debilitating mental illness. Despite his seemingly 180 change, some still were very wary of him. The B states the following. Following an interview, uh, following a 1978 interview with Matthews's longtime acquaintance, Janet and Zara, Yuba County Sergeant James Black wrote that Matthews had repeatedly told Zara of a dream that he had where several other people, where he and several other people would disappear. And Zara called Matthias a very violent person, hurting several men seriously, and said that he also hates women, according to Black's interviews notes. But even under the mellowing haze of his antipsychotic drugs, such as the cogitin, stelazine, and uh, proluxin, Gateway Gators basketball coach Robert Pennock told investigators he still felt like Matthias could flip at, at any time. The other boy's parents weren't comfortable with Matthias either. Even though they didn't seem to know about his criminal record, uh, he was a very strong personality and the only one in the group that would fight back if threatened. According to the investigators of the five missing boys, he was the one that was most likely to lead and suggest places to go or or things to do. According to Beecham, one of the investigators, he said, I know parents at the time told us, or they told me personally, that they had deep concerns about Gary being involved in this. They were unabashed in their opinion of telling me that. A brother of one of the other victims also noted that Matthews' family were weird following the disappearance. According to the, the B, it states, no one pulled the trigger on the boys, but something or someone killed them. And when he was asked if he thought his brother and the other, if, if he thought that Matthias set up his brother and the others to die, Dallas Weir replied, that's the only thing that makes sense. Weir recalled that the hit 90s television series Unsolved Mysteries sought to involve the family's pers- permission to do uh, an episode on the, fi- the missing five sometime after their dis- disappearance, but... Every family member agreed except the Matthias family, despite him still being missing. Matthias' surviving siblings declined to comment or could not be reached by the bee. Weir said, that's just suspicious. I'm not saying they knew, but, well, you could probably guess what I think. 
Ida Klomp was Matthias's mom. And she had taken her children and fled her husband, Matthias' father, Garland Matthias, when he was a child. And it sounds like their relationship wasn't a healthy one. Sharon, Gary's sister, rarely spoke of her father. And one day in 1987, Garland showed up out of the blue. He ate dinner with Sharon, her husband, and their children, who were 10 and 11 at the time, and then left without incident. And a few days later, Garland would commit suicide. Oh my god. (laughs) What the fuck? I am just kind of stuck on this whole thing. Holy shit. In 2002, Sharon would follow in his footsteps with a a self-inflicted gunshot. Sharon's husband believed that his wife, father-in-law, and brother-in-law all had the same mental illness. He says, as long as Gary was on medication, he wasn't too bad. But when he thought he was okay and not doing his medication, and the same thing with my my ex-wife and Sharon, as long as she was on medication, she was okay. Some people believe that these suicides were caused by the knowledge that Gary Matthias had done something. Others simply point to them as evidence of instability of the family due to their mental illness and Gary's instability that may have caused him to do something undue to his friends. And then, then there's a couple other things that are kind of interesting. About three weeks after the boys went missing, a random Yuba City woman, Debbie Lynn, picked up the telephone and said hello. And a male voice responded saying, I know where the missing five men are he would then hang up. The man called back again the next day and he said, I need help because I really hurt those guys bad. When she asked, who did you hurt? He replied and said, don't play dumb with me and then hung up again. There was one more call the next day on March 17th. He said, those five guys are are all dead. The man said, they're all dead? Reese asked. They're all dead, he repeated, then hung up, and Reese never heard from him again. Beecham doesn't think that this was Matthias. Though Matthias couldn't get his medication if he went off the grid, he couldn't stay out of trouble without his medication. Then there were the family ties. Even on his long walkabouts, he always seemed to come back home to his mom, mother and stepfather's house. So who called this in? And if we know that Weir was alive for 13 weeks after the last time he shaved, he wouldn't have been dead at this point. So it's just some random person causing havoc, calling random people, saying he killed the men? Or was it actually someone who had, like, lured them up there and abandoned them? Right. Jeez. And the guy said he was talking about all five men. He, so, like, that's another reason to think it wouldn't have been Matthias. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that was that's the theory. So let's talk about it. And let's talk about schizophrenia. So, yeah, Matthias did struggle a lot after his time when he turned from his military, and he did have his couple psychiatric episodes, and there were the incidents related to the assaults and his criminal criminal records. So, it's not uncommon for those with inadequately treated schizophrenia, in combination with other risk factors such as drug use, to exhibit violent outbursts, but that those that have found stable treatment exhibit very few tendencies for violence. There is a very prominent stigma when it comes to schizophrenia and, and violence. Schizophrenia is generally... A very, very poorly represented in the media and poorly understood by the general population. So it's easy to see how the, the B newspapers could try and like play on the schizophrenia story and this guy's history to try and say that he was violent. And people would easily believe it since most people think of schizophrenia, they think violence in the same sentence almost. There's no silver bullet treatment for any mental illness, as we know. Um, And finding the correct balance can take weeks, months, even years, and a ton of experimentation, as there is no one-size-fits-all treatment, especially when we look at the early 1970s when Matthias was discharged. And things can get worse before they get better. But Matthias had been on a stable regiment for the last two years prior to his disappearance, with absolutely no incidents, and had been routinely taking his weekly dose of medication uninterrupted up until his disappearance. So I want you to keep that in mind as we discuss this further. And and yeah, we'll kind of go over what schizophrenia actually is. So one of the primary characteristics of schizophrenia is abnormal interpretation of or understanding of reality. It's typical for this disorder to pre- uh, present itself in the mid-20s for males or late-20s for females. So he would have been around, well, he was in the military at that time. He would have been around the time that it usually comes up for, for men. 
Um, and then the common symptoms are, well, delusions. So you have beliefs that they have absolutely no basis in reality. And you may think you're being hurt or harassed or that people are talking to you or talking about you. Or may, you may think that you have an exceptional ability or fame. You may think that someone is in love with you or that a major catastrophe is going to happen. Nearly all schizophrenics suffer from delusions. Hallucinations, hearing and seeing things that don't exist. Auditory hallucinations are the most common type. These may be small things like hearing somebody say your name or what sounds like people talking nearby about you, but not all hallucinations are voices. You may hear thumping, music, screeching, people screaming. You are usually unable to distinguish these hallucinations from real life sounds. Disorganized thinking. This is often uh, noticed through speech. Effective communication is impaired and answers to questions may be partially unrelated or completely unrelated. Speech can sometimes string together meaningless words commonly known as word salad. Often schizophrenics know exactly what they're trying to say and even think that's coming across very clearly, but that may not be the case to outside parties. Then disorganized and abnormal motor behavior. This may show up in a number of ways, from childlike silliness to unpredictable agitation. Behavior isn't focused on a goal, so it's hard to do their tasks. So behavior can include resistance to instructions, inappropriate, inappropriate or bizarre posture, a complete lack of response, or, uh, or useless and excessive movements and tics. And the negative symptoms. This refers to reduced or lack ability to function normally. For example, the person may neglect personal hygiene or appear to lack emotion, like they don't make eye contact or don't change their facial expression or speak in a complete monotone. Many people who have been undiagnosed with schizophrenia may have no idea that, they, that their behaviors and challenges come from a mental disorder and are completely reliant on family and loved ones to identify these behaviors and encourage them to see a doctor. Because this whole thing with this disorder is it, it makes you think that what's happening is real and you don't question it. So mm -hmm. you need someone else to come in. If left untreated, schizophrenia can result in severe problems that affect every area of your life. Complications from schizophrenia may cause or be associated with include suicide, suicide attempts, and thoughts of the suicide, anxiety disorders or obsessive compulsive disorders, depression, abuse of alcohol or other drugs including nicotine, inability to work or attend school, financial problems and homelessness, social isolation, social isolation health medic medical problems, being victimized, aggressive behavior, though that's uncommon. There is no cure for, for schizophrenia, but the symptoms can be managed with medication, therapy, and self-help techniques. Many people who receive treatment regain normal function or may even be completely symptom-free as long as they adhere to their treatment. Having a support system is incredibly important. And with that in mind, let's talk about the points that were made in theory. So Matthias is not special needs. If we look at the symptoms I mentioned, we can see a lot that are very similar to intellectual challenges. Also, we know we need to remember that this is in the 70s in a town of 14,000 people. The town likely had few resources for such a complex mental illness, and there were probably few programs that work to help integrate people on a path of treatment. We know that a support system is incredibly important for schizophrenics. Schizophrenics, so the gateway program was probably the best option available to Matthias and likely did a lot for his recovery. He was very involved with the boys and the game and their basketball games is something that he really enjoyed and was really excited about. So this gave him a support system and a structure that would have helped him in his treatment. So to me, it makes sense for them to him, them to put them in that program if there was nothing else. Um, so in high school, he went to a psychiatric facility for a bad drug trip. Again, this is the 70s. Psychedelics were on the rise, especially in California. Matthias was an older teen that was part of the cool crowd in the football team. So he was a demographic that was prone to experimentation. So he likely wasn't the only person in his friend circle that was doing this. And for some people with underlying mental health conditions or through a particularly intense trip, hallucinogens can disrupt someone's grip on reality, which is likely what put him in the facility at the time. Punching the guard, um, where he said, like, I've been in the military, I don't like it. I thought if I could hit the cop, maybe they'd let me out. So this is kind of an example of, of abnormal thinking and delusional thought that can come with untreated schizophrenia. schizophrenia. He came to a solution that doesn't make logical sense outside of that mindset. If I hit a cop, they're going to let me out of jail. <laughs> like, Right, right. Is there, yeah. I mean, granted, y'all know we are not mental health experts in any way. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. I'm just wondering if there was anything that came up in your... Um, 
in your research about when they when this kind of disordered nonsensical thinking happens if they just go for the immediate like it's like your your id playing around right just like well there's a cop i'm gonna hit him and i think this is what's gonna happen if there's something that it's just like whatever's handy that that's what they go for i like i don't even think it's like that far along in thinking i think it's 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 i think it's a lot more like um reactive yes in that very moment yeah like it it's you know we think if we get on fire, we stop, drop, and roll. It's like they, the conclusions they come to is completely different. They just kind of do it like reactively is what it feels like from yeah. what I was reading. That makes sense. Okay. Um, the fondling incident. So Matthias was still not being tr- really treated at this time. He was there. We have very little information about what exactly Matthias was thinking when this happened. And while there is absolutely no excuse for assault, if we consider the common symptoms, we can see where his logic may have come from. As we saw that they can sometimes have delusional thoughts where they think that other people are in love with them. And as he was also wanting to return to jail, this again, to me suggests that there was a guilty conscience, And again, also nonlinear thinking there of like, yeah, I want to return to jail. This is why I did this. And then, of course, the couple, which was the last one where he was um, threatening to kill the child and stab the mom. This is a horrifying incident on every level. And again, there's absolutely no excuse. But again, the common symptoms and complications would express here. Like what we see, we do, we know that he was on a cocktail of potent drugs like ben- <laughs> Benny's and meth on a, se- on a person with schizophrenia that's been untreated. Like people on those drugs alone go pretty far off the reality wagon you add in such a severe mental illness it's gonna get worse you become completely detached from reality and consequence and with that combination it's pretty much like a nuclear circumstance so yeah all of his negative behavior really like there's no excuse obviously he should still be punished and treated for that but um when we look at yeah he wasn't treated during this time once he was treated he had no issues afterwards so as far as where I'm standing from, I do, like I do not think that this whole thing happened because of him. I don't think he orchestrated this. I don't think he like yeah I'm gonna get my friends lost in the wilderness so that I can what? Yeah, that doesn't make any make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and like he was so fixated on the upcoming like basketball tournament, like that was his like big thing like he was one of the people that was telling his mom like okay i need to wake up this time and he laid out his like uniform and everything he was really excited so there's no justification or reason as to why he would come to that thought and like his parents and stuff confirmed that he had taken his medication up to that point like he had his medication he wasn't off his medication at all so i don't know what do you guys think i oh my gosh it's it's very easy to point the finger at the guy who was schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to do that, I feel like. But yeah. that also feels very disingenuous. And if you... Man, man, I would almost rather go with the theory that they saw something they weren't supposed to and they got chased or, mm-hmm. you know. That almost, that almost feels plausible. Yeah, or like someone's like, oh, I, I need your help. Right. Or, right. like, as a group of guys hanging out and being like, oh, hey, let's just, like, fucking see where this takes us. Which happens mm-hmm. all the fucking time. All the time. It's a lot less likely with people with those kind of um, challenges as they're very they're, they're very structured True. and want to be structured and don't want to like take risks, but it's entirely possible, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just because everyone knows that they generally act a certain way doesn't mean that that could change if one of them had an idea that was like, hey, you know what? We don't know what's down here. Do you want to take a look at the thing? And all of them are friends and they trust each other. And that's. Yeah. Know. And that's one of the things is like, as, as outside observers and many people that look at this case is we're observing it from like a neurotypical mindset of what, mm-hmm. like, well, a normal right. person wouldn't do this, but they're coming from a very different perception of the world. And 
they may have had completely different ideas of logic of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it could have been foul play or it could have just been them making some mistakes due to like something that they perceived. Yeah. Jeez. And it's like the whole like argument, like, Oh, the families uh, were like a little uncertain about Matthews and his family and stuff like that. And I was like, well, yeah, their sons are missing or then later found dead. Matthews was never found and they find out about the stuff of his criminal criminal record and everything like that. And yeah, like they, they want to blame somebody mm-hmm. like I don't blame them for blaming him. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but I can exactly. understand how you've come to those conclusions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like Matthews was never found. If we know that, he has like a tenacity to walk ridiculous amount of miles to places. Like if he survived, I think that he would have showed up at home. Yeah. Yeah. He would have eventually made his way there. Totally. Yeah. He's the, he's the runaway pet that always comes home. Like he's, that's he's got a track record of that. Even like when he's not even on his medication, it's what he does. That is so so creepy. Right. And then, like, them not wanting to be involved in the Unsolved Mysteries show, like, I don't blame them either, because, you know, Unsolved Mysteries could have came to the same conclusion that these newspapers did. Right. Let's, oh, he's schizophrenic, so he's, like, Blame obviously... that guy. Right. He went off yeah. in a rocker and killed them all, or... Yeah. yeah, like, even now, schizophrenia is so stigmatized. In the yep. 70s or the 90s, like, mental illness was, had such a bad rap back then. Uh huh. Oh my gosh. Ugh. So yeah, we, like don't, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know what happened. Um, no bodies were never found. It's also, but they were up in a massive park full of wildlife. Ugh. So it's very likely that his body's just out there somewhere. I I personally don't think he's alive, but it's entirely possible that he still is, it's just somewhere else. I, yeah, I mean, you could you can spin so many theories. What if what if he did something and then he disassociated? He totally forgot who he was. What if, I mean, or even <laughs> witnessing all that could have caused him to disassociate. Yeah, yep. And he's in a he's in a care facility somewhere under a John Doe. Like we don't yeah. have any idea if he's dead. Maybe he's buried in a potter's field somewhere because someone who freaking knows. And I hate not knowing. Yeah, no. This is yeah. This is like this is one of those weird cases that ever since the first time I heard it, I just it's been stuck in my brain Uh because there's so many unanswered questions about what happened, Uh and it's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, jeez. So yeah, that's my fun story. Oh, Um, oh. so fun. Oh, sorry. Um, Yeah. So local, state, and federal law enforcement. Agents spent more than 6,000 combined hours looking for the young men. Dogs, horses, helicopters, and snowcats were all used, but everything turned up with dead ends. So we still have no answers. The last update that we have is that in 2006, Mark Matthews checked yes on a letter from the sheriff's office to indicate that his brother Gary was still missing. Oh. Jeez. And now I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Yes. <laughs> Wants to go next. And that's all for this week. Funnily enough, right after recording this and preparing to upload the story, I came across a huge trove of brand new information. So we'll be recording an update to the story with some new mystifying details to add a bunch of new theories and potential perpetrators. That will either be posted next week or the week after. We'll keep you updated. As always, links, sources, and pictures can be found on our website, thehumanexception.com. Do you have an idea for anything that you want us to cover? Want to tell us we're wrong or just want to say hi? We now have so many ways for you to do that. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Human Exception, email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com, or come join us in our new Discord server. You can find the link on our website under the contact page. Keep on being excellent, my humans, and enjoy your weekend. Oh, 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 oh,
I am I'm actually going to check the weather real quick because we're supposed to have a bunch of storms, so I'm hoping it doesn't do that while we're recording. That would be weird. But also, mm. think of the ambiance as we're talking <laughs> about missing people. I know what I was going to ask you. Do I have to, for eggs, totally different thing. Do yep. I need to unattune the sending stone walkie-talkie thing that I have with Varus if I want to wear something else? No. Okay. It seems like too much work. <laughs> and like, it's not like they do a whole fuck ton. That's fair. She's going to be like, okay, here's this thing. It keeps you from dying. Here, have fun. Someone want it. You can fight over it. I'm going to keep this thing that lets me, like, not die, like, five times. Sweet. Yeah. Actually, probably what she'll do is she'll tell Varys what it actually does and then tell everyone else that it actually summons Hydras. (laughs) (laughs) I got this thing. I'm going to open it up. Hydra. So we're going to have like uh, me, a dragon, boo, and then a fucking Hydra. I just set the Hydra on the beasties and then we go run around and be like, haha, treasure by. Never, ever let me play this character ever again. She's forbidden. <laughs> <laughs>